Hello and welcome to Sydney Ideas with me, Dan Gaffney. Can food really help us stay well and ward off diseases like diabetes, dementia and cancer? This is one of the questions we explore in this latest podcast here at Sydney Ideas. The idea of good food as the foundation for good health isn't new. Many ancient cultures recognised and adhered to the concept of food as medicine, but today we seem to have lost this notion. Our food environments in the 21st century are littered with pre-packaged and processed foods, and a lot of takeaway and fast foods have little or no nutritional value. Many believe we're eating ourselves sick. In this Sydney Ideas Health Forum, we ask four leading experts how we can reclaim food as medicine and whether we can really eat our way to better health. Joining us in the conversation are Associate Professor Michael Skilton. He's a fellow at the University of Sydney's Bowdoin Institute of Obesity, Nutrition, Exercise and Eating Disorders and at the Charles Perkins Centre. Also joining us is Dr Joanna Harnett from the University of Sydney's Faculty of Pharmacy, together with Dr Christina Adler from the University of Sydney's Faculty of Dentistry, and finally, Sue Radwagoners, who is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian and an internationally published author and wellness speaker. Christina, 700 bacteria in the mouth and on the teeth and probably millions more in the gut. Give us a short lesson on what the relationship is between bugs in the mouth and our overall health. Well, I guess um, when people have been talking about sort of the change in the diversity of what we're eating, um, we definitely know that, so in our mouths, I guess, there's a lot out there about the gut microbiome, I guess more in the media, but maybe less so about the oral microbiome. So we basically, your teeth and your mouth is all covered in a whole lot of different bugs. Um, and when we teach, you know, the students about this, you've got, you know, the suite of life in there. You've got fungi, you've got viruses, you've got bacteria, so you've got a whole ecology going on there. And I think when we're talking about food, we want to feed that whole ecology. We don't want to be sort of selecting for certain species that can take over, which are then going to cause disease. So we sort of want to keep that, I guess, that idea of balance or things being not in an um, uneven state, basically, because that's when we get problems sort of thing in the mouth. Now you're also saying that it's less diverse than our ancestors. Why is that a problem? Why is um, lack of diversity now? So a it's not. So diversity doesn't always equate with health, um, but it is one area in the microbiome where, particularly in oral, when you have when you have more different types of bugs being able to exist all together, then often that is associated with increased health. And so. What um, I've done before, so my PhD, I had a look at looking at, say, hunter-gatherers and agriculturists. From so I went around and collected bits of plaque of skeletons that were about 10,000 years old, and then we came up with a method basically to extract the DNA from there, so we could say what exact bugs were there, and so we could track over time as we changed our oral health. So basically, if you looked at skeletons, you could say in the past we basically didn't see decay. Before we had an agricultural style diet, we didn't see very high levels of gum disease either. So what we did was we had a look at this carcass and we saw that there was more types of bugs, not different types, but just each individual had a bigger suite of different types in their mouth in the past, whereas when we started an agricultural style diet, that diversity started to go down. And then we had another change. So agriculture was one thing. We farmed and we had our animals. We had snacking then too. It wasn't as, you know, in between. It's much more frequent. But then the next thing was industrialisation. So then we refined sugar beet and cane. And then again, diversity went down again. So that means you've got a sort of dysbiotic state in your mouth. 
And so now certain bugs can take over, which can feed on certain types of bacteria, such as uh, certain types of food. So sugar is obviously an important one for decay. But it's sort of trying to understand how that pattern has gone. So if you've got more diversity there, you've got a better ability to weather any storms that come along. But if you don't have that diversity there, then you eat something and you can really change things up and get disease, basically. So you're not as, I guess, balanced in that sense. Another benefit to multiculturalism. Question. Um, yeah, so I've got three questions. I hope that's okay. Um, Joanna, what are some popular pharmaceutical multivitamins that are kind of overhyped and not actually that useful? Christina, this is kind of flowing on from what you've already just said, but I'm interested to learn a bit about which foods are beneficial for oral health. And Sue, you've studied a Mediterranean diet, and there's a lot of info out there about the evils in inflammatory properties of gluten, and this sort of like flows on from a growing agricultural diet. So I'd like to get your opinion about that since Mediterranean diet is high in gluten. That's what's called getting bang for your buck. Okay, I'll just I'll keep going because I guess it's on the same similar topic. So I guess something with diet for oral health. So I was talking to, so I work out at Westmead Hospital and I was talking to a few of the clinicians and a lot of the diet recommendations for oral health, it's very negative. It's sort of don't, don't, don't. It's not sort of what should you do. And I guess that reflects probably because we've had a big focus on sugar and decay, which definitely has an important role in causing that. However, we don't actually have evidence-based information about well, what, types of what types of food, what kind of macronutrient profile, and the texture is really important for oral health too. Mm -hmm. So it's not just what you're eating, but like as in it's a, the form of it too, because that removes plaque as well. And so we actually don't have a whole lot of information out there about exactly what that profile would be. So we're currently undertaking a study at the moment where we're looking at, well, exactly what would that profile be to give you sort of optimal oral health or an optimal oral microbiome, but we're particularly looking at, I guess what Michael mentioned earlier, is that it changes through life. So we're particularly focusing on that study in older people who tend to experience more um, gum disease. And so if we can come up with a sort of profile of foods which are going to give you this healthy oral microbiome, but we also need to look at there is that the food might not directly influence the mouth all the time, it might influence the gut, which talks back to your mouth. So a lot of this is about looking at systems not divided, but trying to look together in a multidisciplinary fashion to come up with that diet that's really going to help you, not something that we just look at one system, we find one answer, but actually it wouldn't work if we took into account everything else. So um, your question directed to me was about multivitamins and um, is there um, hype about which one is it which ones are the duds well i think the foundational message there is they really um only play a role where there is an adequate dietary intake and when there is an adequate dietary intake they can um, be used as a temporary uh, um, fix to to meet that, that need um, however it they shouldn't be a backstop you know all the time uh, then there's another approach which is probably being promoted a little bit more now is where specific nutrients in isolation are being used for more of a pharmacological or a therapeutic effect um, and we're seeing this with individual nutrients and for some of those there is some evidence in specific populations they can be helpful um, and, uh, and, and I think that's important so there's a lot of sifting so it's outside the context of this talk to 
go through the A to Z of vitamins, which ones have got evidence and which ones haven't, but it is about sifting the evidence, very much so. Um, and there is concerns that, you know, some nutrients, particularly nutrients such as iron and calcium, uh, when taken in excessive doses, and some of what we call fat-soluble vitamins, like vitamin A, D, E, uh, and K, can all have toxic effects when over-supplemented. Um, prior to uh, commencing this discussion this evening, I was speaking with Sue, and something that she has observed in her practice is people taking multiple um, uh, supplements or um, a broad variety of multivitamins and slowly accumulating toxic levels um, and uh, she had a case of someone with iron overload from that. So we need to be very prudent, they're not um, uh, and judicious about the use of those, um, those supplements. And, and I wouldn't mind just very briefly talking to the gluten question because I've just published an article uh, around that question about the uses of gluten-free diets because they are very popular. And I think it's just important to point out a couple of things about that is that gluten um, is a, a protein that's found in wheat, rye and barley, which is very diverse and common in our, um, the Western diet and parts of the European diet. Um, and there are medical indications for its exclusion, as in celiac disease, a skin disease called dermatitis hepatiformis, and another disease of the neurological system called gluten ataxia. Um, but outside of those exclusions or, of gluten, the evidence is much less um, to support that it is of benefit um, to health. And often people that go on gluten-free diets find themselves in the health food aisle of the supermarkets buying highly processed white gluten-free foods that are very high in sugar and inappropriate fats, um, as, well, unhealthy fats. Uh, so inadvertently people may be adopting a, a more unhealthy diet through going on a gluten-free diet. And um, Sue will talk to this, but the, the Mediterranean diet is not actually really heavy in gluten. It's heavy in, in, in legumes and fruits and vegetables with some wheat as part of it, which of course contains gluten. So I'll let Sue take it from there. Mm, I agree with everything you've said, Joanna. Um, the other thing is something many people don't realise. Because gluten is a plant protein, it actually lowers your cholesterol. Did you know that? That's from some work at the University of Toronto. It can be used in a cholesterol-lowering diet. And the majority of us don't need to avoid it completely. There are people who must, for the reasons just indicated. What many people seem to be sensitive more so to is something that coexists with gluten in the same food. And you might have heard of the term FODMAPs. Has anyone heard of FODMAPs? Can I just see? So most people have. So these are other carbohydrates that coexist in the same foods. And what the research, particularly from Monash Uni, has found is that that's usually the cause of the tummy upset. It's not the gluten, but they coexist in the same food and people have latched onto this gluten word and everyone thinks we should avoid gluten because it's a healthier diet. Problem is when you avoid gluten, most people don't make up that fibre deficit and that changes your microbiome in a very negative way. And staying on a low FODMAPs diet has been shown to decrease the mi microbiota diversity, which seems to be really harmful. Now, the other thing is with regards to the Mediterranean diet um, and most other, I think virtually all, diets associated with longevity, 
They are all high carbohydrate. None of them are high protein. But what's popular at the moment? High protein, low carb. Um, but they used to use predominantly unrefined carbohydrate foods. So things like bulgur wheat, cracked whole wheat or frika, which is just a more traditional way of um, preserving the wheat. They pick it green and they lightly roast it. You know, uh, Roman gladiators used to eat barley. There's a lot of evidence for that. And these foods we know contain prebiotic fibres and it's these prebiotic fibres that are crucial to feed the good bugs. Because if there's one thing that we know in terms of the gut microbiome compared to the oral one at least, um, if you feed up the good bugs, they look after you. They take care of the bad bugs. Right? If you let them set up real estate in your gut and if you have this large diversity, the good bugs look after the bad bugs, keep them under control. You don't have to worry. So all we need to be concerned about is getting enough plant-based dietary fibre, going back to your point, Michael, and you can't get that from lean chicken or lean piece of steak. You need to eat plant foods. Um, and then the bugs will look after the rest. Yes, it's just a question to the panel generally. Uh, the latest on the relationship between diet and autoimmune disease. Is, could you tell us the latest on that? I'm thinking of things like uh, chronic colitis or uh, there's many other autoimmune diseases which I'd well, be curious. I, I could speak to the celiac component because we know that people with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease where the body confuses gluten and self and um, attacks the small intestine, we know that that particular group of people are at, at risk of developing other autoimmune diseases. Um, so in that context, we know there's an increased risk. I can't speak outside of that as to whether the diet, um, other particular diets may result in autoimmune disease. But we do know that there is um, alterations to the gut microbiome has been associated with other autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, um, and so forth. So that there is a link which is likely to be related once again to the diverse plant-based diets that uh, we all seem to be advocating here. Um, there are a few areas that have been studied but this is one of the areas probably in terms of chronic disease that's been most poorly researched. I think we'd all agree on that. So the, one, the most obvious one I guess is type 1 diabetes. And we've known for some time that there are these associations with early life exposure to dairy protein and developing type 1 diabetes. This is not proven yet. Um, it appears that A2, the A2 protein compared to the A1 might not elicit the same response. But it's because later the body recognises the protein that it's been exposed to which looks a bit similar. Um, to the, to the uh, beta cells and it kills off your own beta cells that make insulin and you can't make insulin and you get type 1 diabetes. So again it's happening because things are getting in through the gut and this word, sometimes they used to call it leaky gut in years gone by, I think naturopaths used that word, but it makes sense. It's, we call it in science intestinal permeability as Joanna mentioned and if you don't eat enough of this fibre, and I'm thinking literally at every meal, what happens is you starve the good bugs and what they're showing now is how do they survive? You know what they do? This is fascinating. 
they start degrading the mucus layer that lines your gut and they start eating that. And what happens when they degrade that? They open up little channels and that's the intestinal permeability. And then all kinds of things can get in, gluten, casein, um, the endotoxins. These are the toxins from the actual bacteria. So maintaining that gut integrity is crucial, feeding up the good guys um, and keeping that mucus layer <laughs> repaired. And another thing is what helps to repair the mucus layer they've shown recently is these short chain fatty acids. Where do you get short chain fatty acids from? You get them, they're a result of fermentation of good carbohydrates. So you might have heard of butyrate, propionate, acetate. Um, so if you eat legumes regularly as they do in India or Africa, that was the traditional diet or in Greece traditionally, that was the meat from the soil, what you're doing is you're actually enabling some leftover food, which is fibre, which you can't digest with your human enzymes, but it's food for the good bugs. They're fermenting it, making these short chain fatty acids, which tone down inflammation, repair the gut mucus layer and do a lot of other good things as well, like lower your cholesterol and other things. My name is Isabel and I'm really excited to be here learning from you all because I'm a medical doctor and I just feel that, well, I don't feel, I know that I didn't get adequate teaching about nutrition in my degree and I'm now working, it's my first year working and I'm prescribing insulin, I'm seeing all these young people coming in with strokes, I'm thinking about restarting statins and I don't feel I have adequate training or knowledge to be managing these conditions and thinking about how diet affects them. I'd actually like to ask the audience quickly, who in here is a medical doctor? One, two, three, four, five. Okay, six. That's great. Because when I try to talk to my colleagues about nutrition, it's usually refer to dietitian and ignore. So I have two questions. The first one is to each member of the panel, if there was one thing you could change about the way that doctors currently practice, what would it be? Or something you'd like to know for the doctors of today and tomorrow to think about? And then personally, a selfish question, as someone who's just started working and doing my training, are there any courses or programs that you think junior doctors should be doing to be informed? So can I ask, how many hours of, um, of uh, nutrition diet related lectures did you receive during your medical degree? That's a great question. I was actually thinking about leading with that. I, we got a lecture on uh, the low GI diet from someone who works in the testing lab in relation to diabetes. I seem to remember half a lecture when we were talking about cystic fibrosis and pancreatic enzymes and then I think there may have been a tutorial where diet was considered one of the elements. So probably maximum three hours in a four-year graduate program. But that, that sounds... Um, <laughs> that sounds pretty typical, I think, for what the, 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 you know, the situation is here in Australia, unfortunately. Um, to my knowledge, currently here at the University of Sydney as part of their, as part of their medical program, I give a, a lecture on um, what's in a diet, I believe it's called, um, which is a... Two years. <laughs> yeah, we'll be, this will be year number three now. Um, but that's, uh, you know, we, they're currently renewing the medical degree and I, for one, have been pushing for more um, nutrition and diet-related content. Um, so the current lecture is in the endocrinology block. You know, it would make sense that there'd be more lectures in endocrinology, more lectures in cardiovascular. You know, this is not, a, you know, this shouldn't be a single one 
lecture kind of um, education for medical professionals. Um, so I think it's the, uh, um, um, the American Medical Association recommends 19 hours of, uh, of training in diet and nutrition for undergraduate uh, medical trainees. Um, so currently we're nowhere near that. Um, I think we should be aiming towards that. But uh, I, you know, I think it would be helpful if you um, emailed people from medical school here and lobbied for that kind of thing. Other, you know, we're doing it. It'd be good if they received that kind, same kind of feedback from others. Can I just? It's an excellent question and something that I've been worried about for a very long time, and something that I may be able to help contribute to down the track. Um, this is based on a paper from the US, but I suggest the stats might be similar, only about 12% of consults with a GP touch on diet or nutrition at all. And even with the high-risk patients, only one in five of those patients get any dietary advice. So you're absolutely right. And that's because, and they've done the research, doctors, one, don't have time in GP practice. You know, what can you do in a seven-minute consult? A dietitian takes an hour to do an assessment to give advice. Don't have time and they've said they don't have the training. That will all change in the future. To give you an example of what's happening in the US at the moment, there are more than 10 medical schools now that actually teach food as medicine, culinary medicine, and it is a practical subject. It's elective because you can't fit everything into the course. But I think that's going to be the future. And it's not just food as medicine, it's the whole lifestyle medicine movement that's starting to take off. I think all health professionals need to be better trained in those simple, low-tech, inexpensive things you can prescribe, like how many hours of sleep you should get, because that clears the amyloid from your brain during the night. Did you know that? You know, how much you should move, um, a prescription for 30 grams of nuts a day, or, or whatever. So I think it's coming... But at the moment, it's really poor, you know. In two weeks, you can't even learn the ABCs about vitamins and minerals, let alone the complexity of the synergies between foods and phytonutrients, which is why it takes five years to train a dietitian at university level. And even then, we find out that there's so much more to learn. Is it working? Yep, sir. Um, I'm a final year... Bachelor of Health Science Naturopathy student here in Sydney. A central tenet of our studies is food as medicine and that's um, a central theme in traditional and um, confidential medicine. Going back to a lot of the Ayurvedic and TCM which is all about food as well. What role do you see um, those traditional philosophies as well as the practitioners that are coming out of our schools can play in this, in this movement? Yeah, um, well first it's lovely to have you here um, and I think it's, um, we have a, a basic regulatory problem in Australia in that the profession of naturopathy uh, is, is self-regulated. So there is currently not a standardised um, practice of the profession and therefore we have a, a great variation in public confusion about the competencies of the, the practitioners out there. Now that being said, there is um, some very competent and well-trained practitioners that are out there that aren't fitting within the current um, system or, or known what their skills and their knowledge are around food and nutrition. 
and I think it does play a really important role and it's an untapped resource. But there's some things that we need to put in place so that can be utilised in a favourable way and a more profile way for the community. So if we pop back to Isabel's question um, about what could change in medical, um, uh, in one thing we change about how medical doctors practice, I think interprofessional collaboration is a really important part of practice uh, because as Michael's pointed out, doctors are very busy being good doctors, um, acknowledging nutrition and having people in their practice that they can work closely with around that can really be a great benefit to uh, people seeking your care and I would love to see that um, you know, change over time. Highly qualified um, nutrition naturopathic practitioners mm -hmm. with highly trained dietitians working together with doctors to provide um, better care. Hello, we get a lot of conflicting information about cholesterol, in particular eggs, for instance. Um, has that changed in the years? Like 30 years ago, cholesterol was a big issue. Everyone was discussing it. Everyone was paranoid about it. Uh, lots of medication was given. In today's research, has everything changed about cholesterol? So the... Um so cholesterol, uh, firstly, it's, a, um, it's derived solely from animals. It's only, you only get it in animal-based products. Um, cholesterol does weekly, dietary cholesterol does weekly increase your circulating cholesterol levels. Um, it doesn't seem to specifically benefit um, uh, you know, good cholesterol versus bad cholesterol. If anything, it might specifically benefit, uh, well, sorry, increase your, your bad cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol levels. Um, that said, it is not a very strong association. The effect size isn't very big, um, which is why uh, in our most recent dietary guidelines, or at least in the most recent US dietary guidelines, and I believe ours as well, they've removed um, the recommendation to limit um, egg intake. Uh, now, the evidence with regards to egg consumption has been a bit, um, a bit mixed, to say the least. Um, and I think with eggs, you know, what you have to weigh up is that, yes, they're, they're rich in cholesterol, but if you're, what, with a lot of dietary research, you have to weigh up what people are eating if they're not eating eggs. So if you decided, uh, you know, if you were a regular eater of eggs and you decided to substitute your, you know, your three-egg breakfast for, you know, a lovely bruschetta with some avocado as well on the side, um, that may be more healthy than what the eggs are. Um, in comparison, though, if you decide that you're not going to eat your eggs anymore and instead you're going to have a few, uh, a few rashes of bacon, then that might be a bad choice. So weighing that up may explain some of those differences in the studies that have come out with regards to the effect of eggs. Um, but eggs by themselves don't seem to have a really profound effect on, on cholesterol. And can I just add a bit sure. to that to stir the pot? <laughs> um, from my reviewing of the literature, it depends very much on your background diet, which is what I think you're alluding to there. If you look at, there are some studies, if you look at the data, if you, the background diet is high in saturated fat and refined carbohydrates, so bacon and eggs, white bread roll. Um, the eggs within that context are, and especially if you consume more than one a day, are strongly associated with a higher risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes if you have cardiovascular risk factors. 
If you take young populations where their cholesterol, serum cholesterol, blood cholesterol is normal and you feed them one egg a day, it doesn't seem to do anything. So if, if you've got risk factors and if your diet, background diet is not a very good one, then consuming eggs does appear to be associated with harm. But if you're very young and healthy, maybe one a day doesn't do that much. But it could be that we just haven't got the data 30, 40 years down the track of what one a day does. We don't know. But I know that there's been concern, particularly from Canada, from some of the, the leading nutrition researchers in the field. For example, Professor David Jenkins, who's actually the father of the glycemic index, wrote an interesting editorial with some other experts because there's been this real push by the PR arm of the egg industry to try and make everyone feel that you can eat as many eggs as you want. Well, the data doesn't actually quite say that. And, you know, if you design a short-term study, a three-month, six-month study correctly, if you get healthy people, you might not see much of an influence. So we're worried about people who already have risk factors um, having high levels, particularly in the context of an unhealthy Western-style diet. Um, so we can all sort of agree that a variety of fruits and vegetables and legumes is, you know, plant-based food is good for a um, healthy diet. But I just wanted to get an opinion on meat consumption and how much we should be eating, which we should be eating, which we shouldn't be eating. And I mean, I know it contributes to cardiovascular red meat and cardiovascular health don't usually agree with each other. I just wanted to kind of open that can of worms. So from a, from a cardiovascular perspective, um, it, it, two things. One, it depends on the type of meat that you're talking about. Um, but uh, in all comparisons, if you eat a plant-based alternative, you'll be better off with regards to your risk of heart disease and, and ischemic strokes. Um, now, you know, the, the, the meats which are the worst are those which are the processed meats, um, followed by the red meats and then the white meats. Um, but that said, with all of those, if you substitute those for a plant-based protein alternative, then you'll be better off. And I think the, the same can be said for gastrointestinal health as well. It's the same health message that the processed foods such as sausages and bacon and salamis and deli foods um, are often preserved with nitrates and just in their metabolism they can have, um, um, they can alter uh, the, the microbiome um, and alter the way the short chain fatty acids we were talking about earlier are produced from that microbiome. Um, so I think the overall message is that the processed meats are, are the ones to avoid and the others in, um, in moderation uh, is... You're saying a vegetarian diet is some... Yeah, look, so I think, you know, if, if by all means, if you want to become a, you know, a vegetarian, vegan, plant-based, then, you know, those diets are associated with, you know, beneficial cardiovascular outcomes. But if, you know, if you're habitually eating red meat or some other sort of meat product every night and perhaps, you know, a few lunches a week as well, if you just, you know, cut back on a few of those, then you will still see some benefits. Obviously, the more you cut back on, the more you can substitute in plant-based protein sources, then the greater the benefits. But any step in the right direction is still a step in the right direction, if that makes sense. And can I just say from a cancer point of view, particularly bowel cancer, there is no question Red meat is implicated, but particularly processed meat has been said. And probably we're starting to see the picture better now because 
it's feeding up the wrong microbes. And when you eat a lot of red meat or exposed to it frequently, you are producing a whole bunch of metabolites that cause inflammation like hydrogen sulphide, um, ammonia, cresols, indoles. Most of these have been independently linked with cancer or with ulcerative colitis. We have very high rates of colorectal cancer in Australia and ulcerative colitis because of this high exposure. When you again, again look at traditional diets, whilst they weren't all exclusively 100% plant-based, they were at least 50 to 80, 90% plant-based because you just couldn't get a lot of exposure to it. Now it's cheap, people are eating it three times a day. So there are many plant-based dietary patterns, um, some including some meat, so you don't have to be 100% if that doesn't suit you. But we find certainly in my clinical practice, if we want to get the maximum result for some very difficult conditions, such as someone who's riddled with arthritis, can barely walk and they're only 32, we bring out the big guns and we put them on a 100% plant-based diet and within a week they come back and they're smiling and I'm going, it can't be working that quickly. But it, it can because it's changing the microbiome. So if you feed a lot of protein, animal protein, you're actually feeding up a lot of these nasty bugs. If you feed the plant protein, it helps. And the work from the CSIRO has shown that if you add fibre like resistant starch to red meat, Yes, it does help. It mitigates it to a point, but whether it's rats or whether you look at observational studies, if you have none, you're better off still. So if you're going to have it, have it only as fresh, <laughs> home-cooked, not the processed stuff you buy from the deli, and in small amounts or just infrequent exposure, like it was done traditionally, once a month at a party or something like that. You lower your risk of uh, perturbing that complex microbiota. Thank you so much. Um, as a dietitian, this is a really engaging um, discussion and seeing so many different um, you know, backgrounds here, it's fantastic. Um, as a dietitian, something I hear a lot about at the moment is probiotics. It's a really big buzzword. Um, certainly lots and lots of research about fermented foods and not denying their role in um, a, a diet, um, the, the foods themselves. Um, but in terms of probiotic supplements, there's a lot of research, or there's not a lot, there's, there's emerging research about the role of probiotic supplements, the, the, the capsules, in terms of people with IBS, um, people who are maybe taking antibiotics. But for a healthy person um, who is eating a pretty good diet, is there a role for probiotic supplements or are we just spending a lot of money on things that are not necessary um, when we can get it from food? We were just discussing this earlier. <laughs> what did the evidence doesn't support that a daily capsule of a very um, limited range of bacteria is going to have long-term uh, benefits or protective benefits that are superior to what is obtained from the plant-based diets which act as a prebiotic for those beneficial bacteria to be able to grow. So the fibres from the plants, they act as the soil for our what we call commensal or normal bacteria to grow and flourish. Um, so to think that one capsule with a limited number of species, considering we've got a very divorce, uh, diverse, um, over 500 different species at least in our intestine, is very limited thinking. 
where, so, so the answer is um, the evidence wouldn't suggest there is benefit from daily probiotic supplementation. But as you point out, there is good evidence for very specific strains um, or species and strains of certain probiotic bacteria from the Lactobacillus and Bifidobacteria family when used for specific conditions. Um, that's outside the scope of this particular um, forum. But, yeah, so it's important to understand the difference. Christina, can we compartmentalise? Oh, I was just going to say also, so probiotics are becoming a big thing in oral health as well. So Blackmores is about to bring out a probiotic for preventing dental decay, which was developed in New Zealand. And again, it's sort of this thing of you're introducing one strain into this really complex microbial ecosystem that contains thousands of different sort of bugs. And so the ability for that one thing to probably do a big action in a healthy individual is probably not going to happen and the evidence at least from the oral side is mainly about kids and dental decay the probiotics there which would be fantastic if we could prevent things but the types of probiotics we've got at the moment and the way what they have to go through to get that out there is also very different they don't have to they're considered a food so your what tests they have to pass to make these claims is very different to say what we would consider evidence-based to recommend them as well I'd say so yeah and Dan, can I just say the bottom line is you can take even a very active probiotic for a specific purpose that's proven to, you know, to help you. But if you don't eat prebiotics, that probiotic's going to die. You just have to keep taking them because you're not giving them the food to live off. You need both. We have time for one more question. Um, we could take dozens more. I think there's one more mic in the room. A question up here, is there? person with the mic? Here, thanks. Um, in terms of just getting more knowledgeable on nutrition and trying to work out what's a fact and what isn't, is there any particular websites or what kind of resources can just the everyday person use? Before, before Sue plugs her own book, um, I'll jump there and say that you know, we've got our own national dietary guidelines and they have uh, specific sections of their website which are aimed at consumers, at Joe and Jane Public, and um, they are a very good starting point with regards to advice on what constitutes a healthy, healthy diet. Um, without insulting our friends in the media office, um, what you often see in the media is a mixed bag. You know, we get bombarded on a day-in, day-out basis with you know, messages, as I said before, eggs are good, eggs are bad, eggs are good, eggs are bad. Um, so I think you know, when you look at... That's all sort of just noise, if you know what I mean. There's always going to be studies coming out which will show one thing or the other. Don't focus too much on individual studies. Um, what you need to do is focus on what the, the entire body of literature is saying when that's synthesised together, and that's what the group does who puts together our, our dietary guidelines. So I think that would be an excellent starting point. That's at the NHMRC um, website. That's what we're referring to there. So, folks, we are going to have to wrap it there. Um, just a quick couple of adverts. Um, the next University of Sydney Health Forum will explore the relationships between humans and our canine friends. Is having a dog good for your health? And is it good for dogs, too, to have human friends? That's a question we'll be examining uh, here on Wednesday the 27th of June here at the Charles Perkins Centre. Um, also to mention uh, Sue Rad, I know has her signer's pen with her tonight so if you want to get a discounted book signed, uh, Sue's signing her book which is Food as Medicine, Cooking for Your Best Health 
straight after the show. Um, and uh, finally, if you would please join me in putting your hands together to thank our expert panel. <laughs>